Good day and welcome to episode two of season two of the Wavepool Mag podcast. Today we're chatting to Skip Taylor, who started his surf consultancy, Surf Park Management, way back in 2017, when the Surf Park Summit was just about to happen in Snowdonia Surf Park. Um, he met up with his partner, Kate, and they went to go and pitch it to the industry, and the industry responded really well. And since then, Skip has been diving deep into Wavepool projects all around the world, you know, relatively unheard of. And as he says, that like a lot of the projects on our Wavepool mag map, you know, we don't have all of them on there because he's working on these, a lot of these projects undercover. So it's a really fascinating insight um, and a deep dive into the Wavepool industry. So it's great to have Skip Taylor on the podcast and um, look forward to chatting with him in a little bit. Wave pool technology is progressing at a rapid rate, and commercially surfable wave pools are opening around the world. Welcome to the Wave Pool Mag podcast. My name is Nick Robinson, and through my guests, we take a detailed look at this fascinating new game. Check us out on wavepoolmag.com. For your curiosity and stick. Let's just jump in here and thank our sponsors. Endless Surf brings the next generation of powerful, efficient, and customizable waves to the world of inland surfing. The most versatile technology on the market today, Endless Surf allows surf parks to generate waves only when and where they're needed. The unique heart-shaped design maximizes beachfront and allows both experts and intermediates to enjoy the same session in a more natural surf setting. Backed by four decades of expertise in aquatic engineering, design management and master planning, Whitewater's Endless Surf holds a solid reputation for mastering the thousands of details each project faces. Trust Endless Surf to power your project to commercial viability. Wavepool Mag is proud for them to support us here in the podcast. So check them out on www.endlesssurf.com. Well, Skip Taylor, welcome to the Wavepool Mag podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, stoked, Nick, to be able to join you guys. Been listening to your show since day one, and it's uh, great to join the uh, join the illustrious roster of uh, interviews you've had. Yeah, well, it's great to hear that you're a fan. It's, it's awesome because um, yeah, we've been working quite hard on it, and then we took a break, and now this is the second series. You're getting back into it because it's just proven so popular, and so many people are trying to get onto the podcast. So, yeah, thanks again. Um, so where are you in the world right now? Right now, I'm actually up in uh, the Northwest in Canada right now. I've uh, When this whole thing broke out, I was down at Melbourne surfing the uh, urban surf facility there. Flew home on March 16th, right when the whole world shut down. And um, have I have a, a family up here, so I wanted to stay close to them. And we've just decided because the cases are so low here and it's a very safe place to be in. It's a beautiful place to be in the summer here. So we're sticking out here. Normally I'd be in Hood River in Oregon right now and then working between California, Hawaii and various project sites that we work on. So, but it's been a great summer up here in Canada right now. Well, it must be, still it must be quite challenging, you know, not being able to travel and not being able to meet or have you managed to, to move into the new normal as they say? Yeah, you know what? It really has, the Zoom world has made life um, functional. And we fortunately have some great partners who are all understanding um, some of the projects. I have a few projects in Hawaii we're working on, and those there's a two-week quarantine there. There's a two-week quarantine here coming into British Columbia. So 
it's just not realistic to go for face to face and have to face a month of quarantine between the travel. So everything's been working out pretty good. Yeah, it's strange to hear. I mean, the way you're talking, obviously in North America, it's a totally different ballgame to how it is in Europe here because we feel like almost like we're coming out of it. Um, and it feels like you're still deep in the thick of it in the North America there. So Yeah, Hawaii just went into another two-week lockdown last week and they're clamped right down again. So it's, it's kind of pins and needles here still. Everyone's just um, waiting to see the Turner cor- uh, the corner turned a bit here better yeah scary times but um anyway let's get a little bit more about you so let's go way back when can you remember the very first time you discovered surfing like where were you and what was it like and what board you rode yeah yeah for sure i actually have good memories of uh, my early surf days because i was lucky enough to uh, my parents had a place in maui growing up and we'd spend uh, quite a bit of time over there every year and um yeah, I remember surfing on the south shore of Maui on a longboard, and uh, um, I was probably about 12 or so when I, I got into it. And I remember my first green wave face standing, going down the line on a little, probably two-foot peeler. And, uh, you know, I was done. I was I ruined my life, basically, from that point on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think many people had a similar similar problem. Yeah, totally. Myself as well. Although I was down in South Africa in, in Musenberg, a place where everyone learned to surf there, but it's exactly ah, the I've same surfed there. scenario. Yeah, Have you? I've been there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you Bay see all there? the shark signs there? I went over to the far side. I can't remember the break on the far west side where you hiked down to a beach, and it was a beautiful beach, but it, it definitely had a spooky feeling to it. Could have been um, Misty Cliffs, but yeah, there's some amazing surf spots around the Cape Peninsula. It's crazy. Yeah. But I, I noticed um, when I was doing a little bit of research for this interview, are you a keen paddleboarder? Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of uh, a multi-sport water guy. I um, have a big background in windsurfing too. I actually, that's my home is in Hood River, Oregon, and that's a big water playground for stand-up and wind sports and, and stuff. And I I, um, I do stand up a lot. I've done a lot of work with uh, uh, Tristan Boxford and the, the uh, APP World Tour. And uh, I'm a big fan of um, the, uh, you know, enjoying the ocean and waterways and whatever way works for you right i don't fixed on any one mode of transportation on the water that's fantastic because there's so many people who are highly prejudiced prejudiced against paddle borders and against boogie borders and everything and and many wave pools don't even seem to consider paddle borders have you seen any um any wave pools that are actually open to paddle borders no and i think it's a huge miss i mean obviously when they do the sessions they got to modify when they do them but i really think you know, places like the Wave and Urban Surf and, um, you know, even Waco um, could be running sessions that would be specifically focused to allow people to uh, to have some versatility. Um, I don't think it could be mixed uh, having uh, um, uh, on the advanced Wave, having a stand-up board in that those places are still a little too confined in the Wave pools, but um, doing some standalone sessions for uh, to provide some versatility. And that even comes to, you know, running the waves at a lower setting from, you know, the, the surf kayaks and other bodies of, of modes of wave, you know, surfing, right? Doing body surfing sessions, hand planing. I think people should really be exploring it all and boogie boarding, like you say. Um, that's really what it's about is uh, getting as many people surfing in as many different modes as possible, right? I understand the Core surfers are always going to take precedence, but there's lots of room on these facilities to, to make room for everyone. Absolutely, yeah. And then also, I mean, you're talking about surf lifesaving and things like that. You can get those kind of people involved, and um, that opens up a whole other 
revenue stream, I would say, and, and maybe Australia. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, the only thing I've heard of is that Kyle Lenny apparently went up to uh, Wave Garden in, in uh, the Basque Country in Spain, and he was apparently stand-up paddling inside the Oh, pool. yeah. Yeah, I was over there that same week. I actually uh, had breakfast with him with that one day in uh, San Sebastian as he was just surfing there, and I was going through there too on a project I've been working on with Wave Garden as well. And uh, he he did mention he was on the stand-up, so it's great. But it's a you know you can set that wave up to be perfect or whatever level you want to uh, to to easily glide in on a stand-up too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so has your professional life led directly up to surf park consulting, or is that what you planned? No, you know, it, it just is a series of, uh, you know, events that led up to it. Uh, my background has always been in, um, I, I ran a, a sports marketing agency for many years with offices in California and the, on the West Coast, out in the East Coast, and um, ended up being acquired by IMG. So I, I my, you know, under these, the, the, the role of sports marketing, I was always connecting, uh, you know, action sports and lifestyle projects to consumer brands. And my, my, my role was always kind of connecting the board to the boardroom. As I grew up immersed in the lifestyle world of skate, snow, surf, or wake, I was running all these sports and events. And everywhere I was doing these events were always in destinations, um, uh, resort destinations. And so I became very close with a lot of the resort owners and the people who controlled the assets of those resorts. And these uh, projects I was doing really helped create a dynamic lift on the business of these resorts, whether it be putting a, a place on the map as becoming the mecca of mountain biking or one that people might know in the surf world was a project I spent eight years working on very closely was we did a transformation of the resort of Turtle Bay on the Wahoo's North Shore. And, uh, you know, we did everything from brought a partnership with Surfer Magazine, created Surfer the Bar. We did partnerships with GoPro and Red Bull and really heightened the active lifestyle sports of it. And through my work in that connection with there and other resort owners, um, as the surf park business started growing um, and being very apparent, I was following very closely because some of the developers were asking about it. Um, I saw a big hole in the marketplace because most of the surf parks that were opening up were basically running blind. They had no background in the operations or the marketing of a lifestyle attraction. And um, I pulled together some of my uh, uh, team that we had worked with on other projects. And um, uh, my other partners, Kate Thurow, her and I formed Surf Park Management three years ago now. And we've had some, uh, you know, good success with uh, developers and partners in, in the surf park world wanting our services. So it's been a, a great ride and a great repositioning of our skill set from the ski, golf, beach, resort world into the uh, specifics of uh, how a surf park uh, can be uh, planned for and, uh, and the returns that are needed um, that come into play now because there's some sophisticated money coming into the place now. Um, it's not just family money that kind of started this business. It's now, you know, real uh, investors and REITs are looking at it, very high-end developers um, are into the space right now. Well, let's dig into surf park management because um, I was going to chat about that a little bit later, but let's go for it right now. I mean, all businesses have, have an inception story. And did you just meet with your partner and, um, and or how exactly did surf man park management come about? There's always a story there. Yeah, yeah. Um we were, I've been very close to the whole surf park scene working on some of the development projects we're going to, we were even considering a wave park at Turtle Bay on the North Shore. 
Um, you know, everyone talks about, well, why would you put one on the North Shore and the Mecca of Surf? And I said, well, look at every phenomenal golf course. You look at Bandon Dunes in Oregon, and it has one of the best practice facilities in the world for for golf. And um, it's not always a good day, and it's often very crowded out in the surf. So um, we were looking closely at it. Um, at the time, Turtle Bay was also in transition to selling. They sold to a big investment firm to Blackstone after we did the turnaround on the property. And I was trying to think about what is next. I was actually headed my way over to Surf Park Summit that was being hosted at Snowdonia that year. And um, in the weeks leading up to it, um, I really thought instead of going just thinking about one project that I should be looking at the space in a bigger way. And so Kate and I spoke and her background is really, she's a, a, a very sophisticated marketer coming from, you know, originally had a Harvard MBA and then she's gone on to be uh, working with a number of resorts. She was a GM at Big Bear Ski Resort. And um, with my background, with uh, the, the sport of surfing and all the action sports world, um, we decided to form the team and we went to that summit representing the, the new comet of, a uh, new concept of uh, a third-party management company that would help facilitate the planning and the operations of these uh, these facilities. And, um, and from there, from there. It took when off. was that? Like 2016. I think yeah, it was 17. I think I think it was 2017. Surf Park Summit was in Snowdonia, wasn't it? I, I mm-hmm. remember it. Yeah, fall of 2017. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it was it was basically conceived in um, in Snowdonia the the company. Well. About the week leading up to going over there, yeah, I remember, I remember <laughs> rushing it. and printing business cards and doing all that stuff as we led up to it, and, and we, it was game on from then on. And how did the market, um, you know, respond? Because obviously, when you're there and you're, you're in the thick of things with everybody who's anybody in the surf park business um, at that summit, how did they yeah. respond? Well, it was interesting because I had been at the previous summit that was held down in San Diego too, right, or in North County, San Diego, and and um, had been talking to all the players. I knew that technology manufacturers. I knew a lot of the people, you know, and, and John Luff, who runs the summit, his team with Jess Pontine. So it, it it is in such a small stage. Everyone knows everyone right now. So as projects started to come online, people started reaching out and talking to us. And we were fortunate to get recommended to a couple of players. And um, plus some of my previous uh, uh, work with developers that were looking at the space that just evolved as well. So it's... Um, it's been a, a, you know, I mean, we don't, we're not a big company. We're a small company, but we're in very deep with the companies we're involved with. It's a, it's a deep, deep dive we take on. Okay. And the, and the team itself, I mean, it's because it's not just you and Kate, right? There's some other people involved that come from a variety of backgrounds. So what, what kind of people did you need to pull together? Yeah, what we really focused on, I mean, and I think this is one of the issues with a lot of the surf parks that have opened, their, their focus has been so primarily tight on the wave that we have the other areas that have to be considered are the ancillary revenues and the infrastructure around these parks that really make the magic work at these facilities. Um, and um, so one of the biggest ones is always food and beverage. So we have a fellow named Malcolm Scott and Malcolm Scott, you know, he spent over 30 years in the food and beverage world from, um, you know, all, all the mountain park, mountain resorts. He oversaw food and beverage for over 30,000 seats for the uh, Vail Resorts and worked with Interwest as well in his day. Um, uh, he was a big part in helping us with the turnaround, the food and beverage also at Turtle Bay. So um, he was brought on as our key lead on the F&B side of things. So, you know, he, he opened up the first ever uh, franchise for Starbucks um, in the uh, in the Vail Valley corridor when they did their first very first franchise. So he has, wow. uh, you know, everything from fine dining to 
you know, snack shops and grab and go and to coffee shops. So, you know, he, he's got the mix and understanding how the, the, the food operations work and um, what a key driver that can be to creating that, that lifestyle food and beverage venue that can be a big driver of ancillary revenues and creating the scene for people to want to be at these places, not just to surf, but just to come hang out too, right? Sure. Um, yeah, because obviously it's vital, isn't it? Totally, totally. I mean, you're trying to create a scene that, you know, a lot of people don't ski for the day, but they go to the, you know, the restaurants and the bars at the bottom of the ski hill you, that the same day they, they may not even skied that day. And that's what we're trying to create too, right? And then uh, the other person we have on is Greg Knight. And um, what he is focused on is a lot of the uh, operations and the uh, ancillary operations around the waves. Because operating the wave is one thing, but there's also the whole flow and how you work with the, you know, the processing of the uh, everything from the touchless payments. And the uh, we're working a lot with technology embraced it heavily in the RFID process and how you um, work through a cashless environment, especially in these COVID days, right, that are coming on right now. But he has a big background in running operations of big facilities. Um, he ran the biggest paddle sports facility in Mission Bay in San Diego. So um, a lot of the facilities we're working with have secondary bodies of water where we're working with stand-ups, kayaks, you know, do, renting e-foils, bringing out Duffy boats, doing all these sort of activities that um, uh, create something for everyone. Right and mix it up. A lot of people, in, a lot of people are intimidated by a wave and water moving, and having these still bodies of water and these secondary activities. I think is super important. And you see, I mean, the involvement of Waco is kind of a model of that in a way, a little bit too, right? And um, mm. that's um, that's one of the you know he, he, Greg's team. And then our, our other person is Paula Blanchett. Just, sorry, just oh, sorry, just, can I just jump in there quickly, just about that. I mean, there's so many different activities that you could throw into a wave pool. I mean, you can do you know, like you said, you do mountain biking, you can do um, cable park, you can do all kinds of. Th- where do you stop, and how do you get the perfect mix? Yeah, I mean, it's all about the market analysis of, um, you know, the, the the cost of building whatever you're going to add and the the expected pickup you can have and the boost of the, in, you know, incremental revenues you can create by adding that element to your pool. And and then um, the operating cost, you know, does it does it pencil out? So each what we do at Surf Park Management, I mean, we're just working on a project in the Caribbean right now that. Every we're doing through this exact stage. Yes, there's going to be a surf bar. We know that. But what else is there going to be? And it's phased. A lot of times, let's, let's focus on phase one, get that up and going. Then we bring in phase two, phase three, and build those elements out. But everything you just listed there, um, many of these facilities have it. And, you know, mountain biking is a, a huge thing right now. You're just building a pump track, right? As simple as that. Or, you know, you can have skate and bike going on a pump track or building a great bowl or street course for skating and you know all those things just cross over and add to the what's what's happening at most facilities right now that exist people go to their surf session and leave right they might grab a bite to eat too but that's about it you're not seeing people going there for the half day the full day it's not like when people go to the golf course or go to the the ski hill and basically spend the day right and that's what i think a lot of the owners of these facilities got to start looking at is how they round out the offering to really extend the stay of their guests there so people do more and that by doing more they're spending more and by and by doing more they're also having a better time and they're more likely to come come, come back over and over right yeah it's crazy that people i almost like they've missed it i mean there's a place called area 47 in austria i'm not sure if you're aware of yeah that, yeah but... i've been there yeah it's a, it's uh, a great concept yeah i do I, we i 
I still dabble in the events world, produce the Crankworks World Tour, big mountain bike world tour. And um, we, we are just down the road in Innsbruck. I, in fact, we'll be over there in October, bring, putting on a Crankworks Innsbruck event there. And so I've been by the Area 57. And it's like an incredible little multi-sport offering and people spend the day there. It's a great, great idea. Sorry, but I interrupted you. You're, to- you're going through the team. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the the, the other person who's really in great uh, the team is Paula Blanchette. And Paula comes from a big background of um, athletic, outdoor and surf apparel background in retail. So her focus is on the retail operations. Her start at, uh, worked at the Lululemon headquarters way back, was the, uh, worked at the wholesale division. Then she actually had a franchise for Lululemon in Portland. And um, she's opened up several uh, retail operations, oversaw that. She worked with, uh, uh, when we were working with Replay Resorts, she worked at Turtle Bay with us and helped redesign all the retail there, opened up a very cool concept to turn a really bad cheesy tour shop into a shop called The Watershed. Um, you know, tripled the revenues of what was happening and, and just really turned the model around of, you know, what a lifestyle store can be. And that's, you know, what, what these, everything we're doing is maximizing revenues for the owners of these facilities. And, and she's got a keen eye on that. And then depending on what the, uh, the demand is of the client, if they need construction support, if they need, um, landscape design support, if they need, uh, high-end financial review support. We have a lot of contacts from our background at working in the resort business that we can bring to the table that will, um, will you know, round out the team and the needs for Surf Park Summit. But the five of us are really the core team at Surf Park Management right now. Excellent. It must be so rewarding to be able to turn a park around and, like you say, triple the revenue in that one retail store and and just bring about success to so many people. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, it's, and, and, and what's great is a lot of times you come in on a cleanup job trying to fix something and those are hard, right? So what what's really exciting about moving our work over to the surf park world is we're starting more at a greenfield stage and we're helping people do things right the first time, right? And not have to fix stuff. Um, and, it, you know, we get in so deep, it comes down to every little detail about, you know, room for where the linen bins are for the, the you know, for the, the towels and where they hide that from the customer and, the whole customer journey from start to finish being seamless when it starts with the website right through to their experience on site to after they leave and our communications after. And um, yeah, the land planning design, the flow of the people, where they walk, where they can't walk, and, you know, and uh, operations. There seems to be, um, you know, uh, I've been to every surf park in the world except for Kelly's right now. Um, uh, and he, every one of them has misses in their, design and their flaws and what we're trying to do is keep a keen eye on those holes and make sure they don't get missed in the future. Do you have three fun stories about any wave pool project? I, I fully understand that you may be bound by NDAs, but yeah. I'd love to hear about some of the projects that you've worked on in the past. Well, I think your listeners will probably pick up. I haven't mentioned any locations or projects specifically <laughs> yet because I, I am under NDA and we're, I mean, our MO, there's a lot of pretty pictures been put out in the surf park world of lots of venues and we're kind of more quietly behind the scenes and haven't announced, but we have projects that are, you know, breaking ground in next month that uh, haven't, nobody really knows about yet that are um, in those planning stages. So I can't really talk specifics, but, uh, you know, I'm thinking, uh, I mean, we have had some, you know, in our business development cycles, we've been, you know, uh, been out to some venues and looked at a few ones and um i remember one of them was in a, a central america state um a hot one i won't go too specific but i remember we drove out this interstate highway through the suburbs of a 
a fairly substantial town to the site that they had picked and they were trying to decide and and um, what they were going to do with this land and and they the surf park was in their top of their mind and as we pulled up to the site and we turned off the on off ramp and turned down the side road that was right along the highway was uh, uh, the secondary road to the highway the site was immediately next to a triple x store and a gun shop and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I got out of the rental car and on the spot I phoned the owner and I go, um, "This isn't going to work for us. If you want this to <laughs> just be just your market viability for yeah, you, and yeah, not yeah." <laughs> and I go, "You're on your own. If you want to go forward with it, we're, we can't do this one. It's not going to work for us." <laughs> so that was that was uh, you know an expensive uh, field trip for us that we uh, had to eat, but it was it's all part of the learning curve and and uh, it's all good. So. But, but talking about that, I mean, how do you vet the tire kickers? Because you go, you must get quite a few people. I know when I was chatting to Waveguard, yeah. I was saying, wow, in the beginning, they just get so many people coming up. Every surfer wants to have a, a wave park in his town. And how do you how do you uh, separate the wheat from the chaff? Yeah, I mean, you're pretty. I can usually tell from the first outreach what pretty close to what level of sophistication the the person outreach is, and. I'll always take a call with somebody, you know, or we will, Kate and I will vet the person, talk to them, give them a few tips. Or we're not a developer, so we're not looking, you know, necessarily be at the, um, uh, those dreamers right there that um, are independents. Um, the, the problem is most of those independents don't have any background in development. They, they completely lack awareness of zoning and land use codes and um, water rights, uh, civil construction, uh, you know, power, uh, access to power, you know, with all the key metrics you need. And they're usually, you know, the, those ones are tough. You know, I've had a guy for me that had an acre and a half of land that wanted to make it a surf park. And it's just, you know, and he thought he could open a surf park for $2 million, right? And it's just like, uh, you know, and, you, you know, I'll, you'll give him a few tips and stuff. But then what we're really looking for is to help those people. And, and if those independents can get connected to the right development partners in their community or in their regions, you know, that's when we really engage, right? When we'll do a proper help with viability study, market analysis and viabilities and assessments. And, you know, we work technology agnostic and we'll help them assess, you, you know, does it make sense to build a huge giant, you know, civil works of a lagoon uh, surf park or is a standing wave maybe more viable? Your land costs are so high and you, you and your space is constrained. So what's going to be the best model? And, you know, that's kind of when we, we help out when there's a level of sophistication to a project and they have access to potential of, you know, finding the funding and the dollars that they need. And they, they do that. And we, we offer, I mean, that's part of our role is to help give that investor confidence. So when they do hit the boardroom of, you know, what I call real money or sophisticated money, um, that they see that there's a professional operating team and building a, a proper operating model. I can't tell you how many financial performers we've inherited or reviewed that are complete fallacies and completely inaccurate on so many levels, right? Um, and, um, you know, rightfully so, because some people have to start somewhere and they do, a you know, call it the back of the napkin performa and our, our role is to come in and help them narrow that down to what is the real viability financially of this uh, as you get into it right sure because obviously it's an incredibly long game and people need to play it all the way through right 
Yeah. I mean, and that's really what our role is, is, you know, yeah, we help in the startup, but we're really there to be partners for, you know, we're signing 10 and 15 year contracts with venues to, to help see this through the long haul. And, and, you know, we hold our feet to the fire to help them with their success. Well, I know that it's not your business, but I mean, if you could build your very own Skip's Wave Emporium, what would it look like from 3000 foot up in there? Oh yeah, it would be uh, <laughs> definitely a more of a, a multi-activity uh, location for sure. And as I always say, is like, I mean, one of my funnest projects ever I'll reference back was Turtle Bay because it was like I had a campus to create the place that was fun for me and all my friends, right? We created mountain bike trails. We created this, we really helped Hans Hiedemann ramp up his surf center. We brought in, you know, stand-up paddling in the APP World Tour. We created a restaurants and bar venues that were great to hang out with, with lifestyle programming. And, and, you know, that's what these parks are. You have these blank canvases to, to, to create this out there. So, um, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, I'm one of the facilities we're working on right now is a private, uh, concept and it, I would love to buy into that project in the future. If I could ever, when you say it, private right? concept, I mean, is it a personal, a personal project of one guy on his own or is it private no. residences? private residence model right and i i think i think just like i mean just like the golf course is the public model and the private model you're gonna see um a few of these public venues uh, private venues opening up uh and coming to life and you know coral springs has been announced or, or coral mountain with kelly's wave and that's you know that's a semi-private concept it'll still have some public access but it's there's you know residents that have access to the wave and that model there and I think you're going to see some of them or that coming out. And the one where I've been working on that's in that model, it's super appealing me to you because we got this really cool health and wellness program that's going around it, this fitness and lifestyle thing and connection to the ocean and programming that goes beyond it. And, you know, like all these things is, um, you know, the surf parks aren't the be all end all to surfing by any means, but they're a great stepping stone for training, practicing to go on, you know, you want to do your trip to Indo or Fiji and, you know, you're got to practice your backside drops into a barrel and you can do that on these waves now. And it's a fantastic way for people to get tuned up for going, experiencing the real thing too, right? And the, Absolutely. The, the, it's such an incredible opportunity for training, isn't it? I mean, the thing is, I know I look around Portugal where I am. If you look, if you go down to the beach here and look at all the surf schools, I mean, the level of training is really pretty low. Um, whereas if you look at places like Costa Rica and, and Surf Simply, one of my personal favorites, so these guys really nail it when it comes to training. I just hope that the wave pool industry will, will get into that and do some real proper training. I think you nailed something there perfectly, Nick, is that there's been between the, the what I call the pump and dump lesson to the, you know, becoming an intermediate to advanced surfer. It is completely unlike golf or skiing. I mean, and that's what this industry needs. Surf needs a progression program to get people um, you know, to become lifetime surfers and advancing their surfing skills and at any age, right? I mean, um, you, you can get better in your 60s and, and as you can if you're a teenager learning to surf for your first time. And right now it's just been everyone figuring it out on their own for the most part. Very few people have had access to coaching and training and, and facilities. And then you know what? Well, I'll harken back to the private facility. What's the coolest thing about that is, you know, the customization. I mean, when I go to the Wave Garden uh, test facility in Spain before they had opened up the Cove, either of their other Cove facilities, it's just fantastic. Um, you know, I go there with a group of people, some of them beginners and some of them advanced. And we go out there and you paddle out and you say, 
send me the two meter reef wave and, you know, take off and have a great wave. And then, you know, there's my wife paddling out and we go, okay, send her the, the one meter Malibu wave. And she take and this on demand surf wave, you know, and the progression and the ability to do that at the, at these private facilities is, is next level. I mean, when you're running public, the wave's got to keep pumping and pumping. You got to set them up for either a intermediate or advanced or, you know, sessions and you set them up for the different levels. But when you get to private facility, then you got this this uh, you know curated experience. That's that is the ultimate too, right? Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, it, it's come so fast in such a short way. Although it didn't seem like it back back in the two thousands. But let's try and analyze the wave pool industry itself. Could you suggest a starting point for the global wave pool industry? I mean, it, it was everything was happening way before Snowdonia and Kelly's video in twenty fifteen and Wave Garden's YouTube Fiesta in twenty thirteen. So when do you reckon it started to get going? Well, I mean, I think one of the big triggers was to um, publicize artificial surfing was you got to give Tom Lochtefeld a lot of credit with what he did with his flow rider, right? And brought that artificial surfing experience to the mainstream. Although there was a sheet wave and it's not really considered a core um, product for surfers, um, it certainly captured the mainstream world and attention when it started appearing in the back of cruise ships and everywhere and people saw these things and, you know, Tom left that behind, sold that, and he's gone on to focus on, you know, lagoon waves and the deep water wave surf experience. And, 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 but I think that was a key trigger. And I think, you know, Kelly's video that dropped, although a lot of us have been driving on the surf park space and aware of the different technologies that were being formulated in this kind of what I call the big kid science fair, what Kelly's video drop did was again, take that next stage of mainstream awareness, right? So I think that was the next thing where, where the mainstream press and developers and, you know, again, sophisticated investors saw that. Um, the problem was, unfortunately, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, the day Kelly opened his wave, his technology was already outdated, right? Yeah. And, and he's got a, a facility that works as a private facility, but as a public facility, it's very challenged model when you can only produce a wave every three and a half or four minutes, right? And it's it's um, it's a tough experience. I mean, surfing Snowdonia, it's good, but it's certainly not an experience like when you surf Waco or one of the the Wave Garden Coves facilities. Those are completely uh, more rewarding experiences, and, and the technology uh, and the danger of running a, a facility on a single point of failure um, um, and the shutdowns and the challenges with that is is concerning, right? With with those, but what I always I always say is every other wave park. I jokingly always told the guys at, at, at Wave Garden is that you guys should, most of their contracts. You know, when they I think they say they have about thirty facilities around the world under contract at one level or another of development, right? And probably more than half of those waves started off wanting a Kelly Slater wave garden, a wave pool, right? But when they yeah. got in, when they got into it, they look into the space and they find it out, including some projects I've been consulting on. They find out the viability of that pool is not very good with the the huge construction costs and the size of body of water you need and the operating income return that can be generated from it so they end up diverting to american wave machine or whitewater or wave garden and, and um those guys you know need to give huge credit to kelly and the investment he made to help them advance their businesses too right absolutely but do you think i mean it leads to a lot of speculation if you're thinking about his future projects or the ks wave coast future projects you think well they must be crazy to use the same technology 
But do you reckon they're going to carry on? I think um, there's going to be the projects like, you know, uh, Coral Mountain in, in the desert that uh, and the, uh, around the private concepts that work. And I think, you know, Kelly Kelly's brand and his name is exceptional. It brings a lot. And for a developer, it's attractive to have Kelly Slater associated with your project. It's like having a, uh, uh, you know, an, a Jack Nicholas golf course, right? And it, mm-hmm. it, it, it does differentiate to a way and, and ultimately some of these developers, it is about selling the dirt around the pool. And um, ultimately a developer leaves the project after these these private clubs get built, right? And um, for them, their model is if they can build it out and sell it out, and then they turn the, the keys to the club over to the homeowners, right? The homeowners own the facility. Um, you know, it's it, it leaves the problems in their hands um, for the long-term, not the, uh, not the developer. They move on to the next. And so part of the business model, if you're a developer and um, want to help, you know, create a lot of excitement and hype is what they've done at... at uh, at the project in the desert, there they um, they'll they'll probably attract other high net worth people, right? And you see the mm-hmm. same phenomena has happened, you know, with you know it happens with Laird and Laird's involvement with projects, right? Um, as much as he's you know at times not revered by a lot of the surf world, you know, there's certain networks of people that you know Laird is, you know, you get him involved and it just people love it. Well, he's right? got a massive name, hasn't he? I mean, to the public, yeah. he's got an incredible yeah. name. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's that balance, I think, when people look into it, you know, and, and then, you know, if I'm looking at it as the person as the, who's going to be involved with the long-term operations, I have a really hard time recommending Kelly's Wave. So that's, you know, from our perspective at Surf Park Management right now, that's, and, you know, and I, I would hope he's looking at other technology and advancing just like WaveGarden did, right? Well, they certainly know how to keep a secret, those guys. So uh, hopefully we can yeah. get them onto the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But obviously, we're talking about a long journey, as we hinted at before, um, from driving by a piece of land and saying, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have a surf park here, to really getting involved in the whole process. It's a a long and involved path. If people are really serious about creating a wave pool, how do you suggest that they start? Yeah, well, I think there's there's two sides of things. People are going to come up from two ways. There's the, the independent dreamers that are passionate. They go, I'd love to have a wave pool in my community. We need one here, right? I get so many people, when's one coming to here? When's one coming to that town, right? And, and um, Yeah, we see a lot of that too, yeah. Yeah, and, and um, they sometimes rally the cause and, and beat the drums. And I think for those people, the best thing they can do is get a find a leading developer that has experience with the um, development in that region. Right, that knows the players, knows the people, knows the cities, or the and the and the, how the approval processes work to partner with, because it is virtually, I think, uh, dead in the water. I mean, people, a lot of people make it through to getting the, I call it the the pretty pictures or those renderings that we all see so many of, and they'll never make it past that because they're they're lacking that next stage of sophistication, and then. The other people that are reaching out are the developers that have no connection to the surf world, right? And um, I think for them, that's, you know, and, and, and even these independent people that come through, um, once they get connected to developer and they get in the mage, they got to reach out to somebody who has got the third party unbiased support to them that can bring them into a, a, a initial assessment of a market feasibility um, and then starting a deeper dive into the the, the planning of the land, the technology um, selection, and the performance. And 
you know, there's there's other groups out there. The the team at Colliers in the UK has a, a group out there. There's you know us that can do that job too. And there's also a lot of independent attraction uh, people who do analysis. But a, a lot of those independent people, we find out, don't have the lifestyle knowledge of of how this adapts. So they got to be careful of who they pick and where they get there. A lot of people need to go into then raise money. And these, these parks are costing, I mean, cheap, you're in $30 million. And a lot of them are raising up to 60, 70, 80, hundred million dollars plus. And you start building hotels around it and other facilities, you're talking hundreds of millions, right? And so the money they need to raise really got to be anchored on solid metrics and, and financial performance that can, can carry them through that boardroom. And that's where they, they, you know, a lot of people are missing right now. And, putting out these sky high performers. And then what none of us want in the surf park industry is to see people raise a bunch of money, build a park and then fail because that failure is going to set all of us back in it for years. Right. And when you see one failure, you know, and unfortunately it will happen. Um, there will be parks that fail and what will happen. It happened in ski resorts. It happens in golf resorts. The dreamer who comes out and builds these facilities, they can't make it. They end up selling it. The second owner and sometimes the third owner is the one who comes along and buys it at a dime on the dollar and makes it work, right? Makes the facility work. One wave pool, which is interesting for looking at it, because I mean, I don't know any of these guys and I've never met them. Um, but the Palm Springs Surf Club looks so much fun because you know got Shane Magnuson there leading the charge and all the guys. And they look like they're having a whale of a time, but there must be some serious knowledge behind those guys and some serious money as well. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, Shane, uh, I love Shane. He's awesome. He, he gave me, he was still at Waco when I got the tour of that facility. He walked me through there. Um, it was unfortunately the same day they announced the uh, their issue with the uh, amoeba. That I, and, uh, <laughs> but Oops. he, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the, um, the uh, having his background and living the operating model of those um, pneumatic waves and what I mean, it's proven technology and his background will really help Tom advance his wave and their test facility. Yeah. That, I mean, there's a lot of hype, a lot of excitement, just like when the, the wave garden Cove had their test facility and there's a lot of hype and cool excitement about that. These are, um, you know, small test facilities and, and the proof of the pudding is really when you get to the full size facility. Right. And, I think there's going to be learning. There's been learning curves for every one of these facilities because there's more than just the wave generating technology. There is the pool design and the bathymetry and people, a lot of people are still not there and everyone gets better and better. So, I mean, there is not, uh, you know, it's not perfect at the, the, the wave in, Mel in uh, Bristol or at uh, uh, Melbourne either. Both those facilities at Urban Surf have some bathymetry issues and Waco has bathymetry issues and all these facilities, each one as they develop, they got to go through the learning curves of now they're making a machine that creates the waves. Now they have to make the water behave properly and round out the experience to more users. And and everyone's focusing and, you know, most of the push has been on these advanced waves, get people in a barrel. <clears throat> that's a pretty small piece of the revenue that's going to fund your part. So you want to be able to create that wave that creates that barrel or creates that air section that gets the hype, but you also want to have a wave that can operate for the 80% of the market that can't deal with a barrel and can't boost an air and just want to ride waves and have fun and, and make that a really good wave too, and not a compromised wave or a secondary wave product, right? That should be focused as a primary product too for these wave technology providers. Um, and back to the wave pool industry itself, could you define the magnitude of it at this stage? I mean, we're currently tracking over about 
80 projects around the world through Waypool Mag, but I'm sure there are a lot more which haven't been even mentioned. Yeah. Do you, yeah. I mean, how do you define the magnitude? I mean, is it it's billions of dollars or amount of projects? Yeah, I've, I've never done a, a, you know, a sum total of what the uh, development magnitude is, but that, that's an interesting one for sure. But there is um, uh, two things. One, I consider it in its infancy still, right? There's going to be a 10-year run of surf parks coming online, and it's almost like golf courses in the late 70s and 80s as they kind of blew up. And, you know, there's going to be, you know, can four surf parks be uh, supported in one market in Palm Desert? That's going to be an interesting one to watch and see what happens there. But I think what it comes down to now is the people in the right markets, you know, that will be the leaders that that get the first in market with the right technology that will create the success stories. And there is a lot of markets that are, um, you know, right for uh, uh, creating these amenities right now. And I, I would say that, you know, your 80 is there's probably when I look at the uh, uh, Wavepool Mag site, there's probably 20, 25 of those that may not be really legitimate that are just kind of the dreamers that put out a picture and a concept. But mm-hmm. a lot of those are really legit. And then for the, everyone you see legit, there's probably a bunch more like none of the ones I'm working on are on your map right now. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> so and, you know, we're not the only ones out there working with other developers too so there is a lot happening out there and um you'll you'll see the legitimate people come out i think a a lot of people that aren't you know don't come from the development background they just come out to shoots with the drawings and the pictures and announce their site but they have no real ability to ever raise the funds or get it over the hurdle right and uh i think the ones you'll be surprised you'll see some ones pop up really quickly that have been being worked on for four and five years but will pop up on your radar over the next few years now and, and be in play real quick. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, the technology because obviously the, the technology is really dynamic at the moment. I mean, I just saw a swell spot coming out or swell MFG coming out with a new product Yeah, um, with Shane Bishon's thing. Do you see radical price reductions and wave efficiencies coming soon? Um, I, I think it's going to definitely sharpen the pencils of the big guys right now, the, the American wave machines, the, the, the wave gardens. But unfortunately, it's not going to be radical. The word radical, I wouldn't say, is in there because to the the cost of building a six-acre lagoon and a cement bottom to that, that's a civil engineering cost, and that doesn't change, right? Um, there's um, those wave technology providers actually don't aren't the ones building that. They're working with uh, local engineers and contractors to build the pools. And then they overlay their technology into it. So you're working with a sophisticated pool building technology that's out there. There's companies like Water Technologies, Inc. that are leaders in it that are working across numerous pools uh, that work with different technologies, right? And then the technology that you get dropped in is the, the second part of it. But oftentimes, the civil cost of building the actual pool is as much or more than the actual technology cost, right? So um, that's not going to drop. And... I think they're going to get smarter in their designs. They're going to learn ways to make these pools work more efficiently. Um, and, um, you know, I just, it's super cool seeing new new technology come out. Of them. I'm having uh, a coffee with a guy later today who has a new concept for a standing wave that's called Ka'ana. And I don't know much about it at all. He's going to show it to me, but it's almost like converting your backyard swing pool into a standing wave and just wow. that ex- accessibility. Right. And then, you know, I really love like when you get back, you know, a little more sophisticated, you get to the like 
unit surf pools, right? Um, yeah. How fantastic is that? There's bodies of water all over the world that you can drop and be in the surf park business for a few million bucks, right? And a small footprint, right? You got a, a hotel with a big lagoon and body of water that you don't need to build a, a, a lagoon. You got places, you know, selfishly, I've been talking to a bunch of people on Hood River where I live in the summertime. You could drop one of these into uh, that area. And I'd love to have one in our neck of the woods to play with, right? And, um, uh, and have access to. So I think, you know, you got the massive infrastructure projects like the wave gardens or the Kelly Slater uh, wave pools, American wave machines, and even, you know, surf lakes. I think the biggest one of all, the biggest monstrosity in terms of scope and scale is the surf lakes in Australia. And it's highly incredible how many waves people can be surfing at the same time, but just a huge undertaking in in terms of, you know, uh, what what you need to bite off to, to get one of those up and operating right so it's it's yeah, uh, so much land and so much and it's so deep as well that's the problem i think yeah. it's about i think it's 30, 12 meters deep stand yeah. corrected there but yeah it's over 30 feet deep and a, any other pool is only 10 feet deep at the deepest part right is uh mm-hmm. you know three meters deep is the typical wave pool and going down to 30 feet you got all sorts of problems in trying to get into water tables and other areas that you have to deal with so where you can build those gets way more limited too and, that, and that's why the you know taking the the limitations off the surf park industry, like a unit does, I think that's super cool, right? Um, it it, but you're not going to be able to have that huge facility and that all round um, experience that you would like a Wave Garden Cove, right? That's a, a, a different model, right? But they're mm-hmm. neither's neither's both have their purpose and their setting, right? Sure. And um, they, they can work. They can all work in the same space. But can I throw in a quick tangent, Skip? What about um, artificial reefs? I mean, I'd had a chat with Greg Weber some time back, and he was talking about um, yeah. artificial reefs and how. Uh, do you think those will really work? And and what do you think of the commercial viability? Yeah, I mean, what you just said, the two things are, one, th- those are undertaken by tourist communities and towns that want to help drive tourism because there is no real commercial uh um, monetization of those ocean waves, right? Um, the the monetization comes in from the economic uplift that that community sees. So if they can, you know, justify spending, uh, you know, two three million dollars to put in an artificial reef because the economic impact is going to be, you know, over the next ten years, create fifty million dollars in economic impact. That's a no brainer for a, a town and a community that can get behind something to create a world class wave because. I mean, we've all seen the studies and Jess Ponting from UCSD has done a great job showcasing the economic impact of a world-class wave to community over the last, you know, 30 years and what it's meant to some of these places, right? And um, I would love to see it happen. Unfortunately, everyone has underestimated the power of Mother Nature and none of them have worked out, right? And none of there's, them have... Yeah, really- there's one in Australia somewhere, which I think is is doing quite well. I'm not sure how it's, how it's shaping up at the moment. I think it's been around for a couple of years. Oh, it is. Oh, good to hear. That one? I, I, you know, I've seen a couple yeah. go in, but I have, I haven't seen the ongoing reports and how they're doing. I've seen some of the failures been talked about, but um, um, yeah, I think, you know, for us at Surf Park Management, it, it isn't um, something that fits in our radar because we're working in a controlled environment, in a gated world, right? And, but in terms of the business of, uh, you know, artificial waves, I think it's definitely a going concern and a great thing to do to create places that have closeouts and, and 
waves that are being generated naturally, but not a very good rideable wave to create a world-class wave, it's a great option. Yeah, it sounds exciting for all surfers around the world. But yeah, the future sounds bright to have an oversupply of waves. It's just, um, let's hope it happens. But uh, as we've got a long way to go, I think we really do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. There's a, this things is are just certainly the beginning. Crowded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're going to see more like, oh yeah, I was just going to say, you're going to see more and more players come in from, um, you know, the non-traditional route to the surf park world. And I think Whitewater is a good example of that with their pneumatic technology coming into the space, right? But their background in building thousands of water facilities around the world and that ability to create and build infrastructure on budget, on time and understanding the process, you know, having a player like that just raises the whole sophistication of the surf park world, right? And that's, you know, what what's needed is is people that can really bring these visions to reality in a way that comes in with a financially viable model and a long-term operating model that works. And, and it's exciting. I mean, I w- was stoked in Whitewater just as a guy who's from Canada um, to see a Canadian company enter the scene and, and have a, a great yeah. product too. That was fun to see too. And then them whipping away Paris from Wave Garden. I mean, that was dynamic. Yeah, yeah, quite surprising because Wave Garden is a very strong product. So I, I was surprised to see that um, happen. But um, you know, good for them. And Wave Garden's got a lot of other projects on the go, so they'll, they'll do fun, just fine without that one too. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll be looking forward. We're going to be speaking to uh, Endless Surf, the, the Whitewater people, soon. So oh, great! Looking forward to chatting to them. On the podcast, yeah. So that'll be exciting news as well. But Skip, thank you so much for your time. It's really amazing to to uh, to see what's going on with surf park management, and um, it's it's great to to meet you over the airwaves. Fantastic. You too, Nick. Thanks a lot, and uh, good luck. Okay. Have a good one. Wait, Nick. For your curiosity and stoke. <laughs>